Hi, my name is John Simmons. I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Kansas, and I'd like to welcome you to this new series of conversations on the MANA platform. MANA is the Saudi platform for culture and philosophy, and we're extremely delighted to have a, on, uh, on MANA for our first interview a uh, discussion with Luciano Floridi on basic questions in philosophy. So we'll be talking about his new book, The Logic of Information, and we'll hopefully set a very high standard for all of the discussions in this series, which will be with contemporary philosophers talking about basic questions in philosophy. So I look forward to continuing these discussions and uh, I hope that you'll continue to tune in and join me and my guests as we address some very basic questions that I hope will be of interest to everyone. Well, it's a it's an extraordinary pleasure and privilege to talk to you, Luciano. Um, we're talking with Luciano Floridi, uh, professor of philosophy at Oxford. Needs no introduction. Luciano is one of the leading philosophers of our time. Um, he's engaged with basic questions that are directly relevant to what's going on in our lives. He's been one of the leaders in philosophy of computing, philosophy of information, the ethics of technology, etc. Um, we're going to talk today about philosophy. So, in Luciano's new book, um, the Logic of Information, which is the third in, I guess, your your sequence of uh, books about information, much of what um, Luciano is doing in the book is providing us with a new way of thinking about philosophy. Um, and so he's thinking of philosophy, and he can explain this for himself, as conceptual design. Um, now, maybe we could start there and, and uh, we could hear a little bit about what conceptual design is and how you distinguish it from, let's say, views like conceptual engineering that other philosophers have, have uh, articulated in recent years. So, so what, what, is, what is philosophy, Luciano? <laughs> maybe we can get, get started there. What are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing here? Uh, uh, who am I? And so on. Uh, no, thank you, John. And uh, uh, thanks, everybody, for, for listening to this. And uh, uh, first of all, just a footnote, we have to make that clear that uh, we owe to the pandemic the fact that we finally get in touch. Like, shame on us for not doing this any earlier. But uh, it's good to be, uh, to be in touch and it's good to talk a little bit about philosophy. Um, seriously. Um, so what is conceptual design? Why philosophy has conceptual design? Well, um, you start thinking in terms of uh, literally, you know, what do we do when we do philosophy? And uh, each of us has been asked that question possibly by colleagues around the corner and says like, oh, I'm an engineer, who are you, a philosopher? Huh, hmm, and what do you do? Well, I said, start thinking, you know, um, I work in the geography department, or my, my wife's a neuroscientist. And I said, oh, and what do you do? How do you do philosophy? It's just like, well, the truth, really the truth, as opposed to what we put on, a, on, a, on an application, is that we think. I mean, you just know, you're just like going around thinking about problems, looking at problems in different possible ways. So, Maybe something like uh, games come uh, to mind to begin with. And so how do you solve uh, that particular move in chess? Or it could be Sudoku, really. And you do a lot of thinking. You try, you retry, and then you realize, uh, oh, wait a moment. So 
my way of thinking here is that I have some constraints. It's not anything goes, so, because otherwise that's dreaming or it's some rubbish. So I've got constraints uh, that maybe you, you can't make this particular move or that move is illegal or that will be too easy. So, and they said, but I also have other things like resources, what we call affordances, now things that come easier to you in terms of thinking, okay, I can put this together with that. And maybe if so, then such and such follows. So there's also, as I just done, a bit of logic. You know, if you start following the path of where ideally, you know, ideas should be going. And then one day I was thinking, okay, what, what is this thing that I do by entirely conceptual? It's not that I do this with my hands, but it looks a lot like Lego. I put you know, little bricks together or pieces and said, oh, it's design. So that's, that's what it is. So here's another analogy for, for those who say, oh, it's a bit weird. Imagine someone tells you, look, uh, I'm, uh, I, need a, I need a chair. In fact, I need four chairs for my, um, uh, for my house and you need to build them. Uh, okay, what do you have? Well, I have a lot of wood. Okay, I know that that is a constraint uh, and you need something you can sit on. That's not the affordance uh, and so on. So you start building with what you have and I call them the data, the ingredients, the elements, whatever that is. Sometimes that is provided by science, by, by phenomenology, the way we live and so on, whatever that comes from, maybe we can talk more about that. But you also have a project, you have the desire of solving a particular problem. Just to be trivial, don't, 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 don't scold me. <laughs> Mind and body problem, or whatever it is that you want, the chair you want to build, say, how do I tackle this particular issue with these resources? You put them together, and all of a sudden you have you know, a, a million different kinds of chairs, and that's the last point I want to make. Good. Design is open, whereas engineering, especially the old uh, car nap sort of style conceptual engineering, is too stiff for my taste. It's not Italian enough. So what motivates, good, so the Italians love design. Um, what motivates philosophy then? You talked sometimes about uh, open questions. So, you know, presumably there are a lot of open questions. There's a lot of different topics that we could be, we could be yeah. interested in as philosophers. So which, which questions are the ones we should be working on and how do we decide that? What are our criteria for picking between questions? So that, that would be, um, you know, a, a sort of a, a meta question about philosophical or conceptual design. Like what, where do we investigate or invest our energies in conceptual design? Like what makes some problems or questions more important than others? Maybe you have something to say about that. Are there some basic questions maybe that, that all human beings ask and are concerned with? I think, I think with? there are. Uh, yeah. And we shouldn't, uh, we should be careful, however, about sort of uh, saying too much and then regret. Uh, let me say first one point, which is uh, we can get them wrong. Easily. I mean, in fact, if you look at the history of philosophy, it's full of questions that we thought, as humanity, were so pressing, and then next generation said, well, nah, couldn't care less. <laughs> so, and, and the trouble is that it doesn't matter how you solve it. I just don't care about the question to begin with. You know, okay? So I could be nasty and mention a few you know, little problems, cottage industries that uh, obsess some contemporary philosophers. And the problem is not that their solution, their solution, or the other solution, or the debate between the solutions. It's just like the question is uninteresting. Any solution is, is okay, because I just don't care about that chair, okay? Mm. Then, so that's the mistake. But when we go through the, the classics, so to speak, we 
we find two things that they are the hallmark of the concept. One is that this recurrent you know, uh, move to readdress some questions, say personal identity, just, just to give one. Today, personal identity is in a completely formal shape, is a different quote unquote chair than it would have been like uh, only 100 years ago. Why? Sure. I'll say the impact of the new technology, all the rest is that we were data subjects, blah, blah, blah. There's, there's a whole uh, new perspective on who I am has been opened up to other aspects. But personal identity as a completely new problem, seriously? I mean, since Socrates onwards. So the balance between a completely uh, classic aspect in formats and transformations that we need to take into account, they're not relative. It's not like, oh, well, then, you know, cultures and times, anything not goes. No, it is not true because that particular sort of group or uh, uh, set of issues around, say, Identity or knowledge or etc., they get they have this double nature of continuity and transformation. So to mm. me, a smaller analogy maybe here, but it's like food. I mean, you can't say that no. There's, there's a point of view in which you say, well, just what you eat, full stop. There's never been any change. Yeah, but really, <laughs> you want to really compare to what you were eating a thousand years ago? I don't think so. Oh, but it was still pork. It was still no uh, sausage. It was still salad. It was still. So it all depends on whether you want to see the novelty or the transformation. I like to think in terms of um, the, the components that make the difference. Today, addressing some of these issues, for example, uh, in political uh, theory, you know, do we really want to consider, for example, the most fundamental element, the, uh, what we share, the so-called you know, uh, uh, res publica, the public stuff, or is actually, actually the ratio publica, the relations that no, no, keep us together? All of a sudden, you have a different view. And for example, in terms of Europe, and I close here, you build a Europe, a European Union on the borders because you think in terms of stuff, or you build Europe in terms of uh, values because you think in terms of relations. And all of a sudden, Canada can be in Europe because it shares the same values. But uh, angry or uh, Hungary, depending on how you want to pronounce it, not so much because it doesn't share the same uh, value. So, the basic point is that we should not look for 100% novelty, 100% classic. Is the continuity and transformation of what we're doing? And here is where history makes a big difference. Okay, so if you think about what's continuous, and you think about what brings us to philosophy in the first place, um, would you say that, let's say an interested young person today is motivated by questions around personal identity that would be continuous with the traditional accounts given in the history of philosophy, or are they motivated by, for example, questions around our relationship to technology, our relationship to sort of social instability, et cetera. So if you think about your own life, were you motivated by classical questions, traditional questions about the nature of the self or your, your own personal identity? Or were you interested more in sort of observing the changing world around us, new technology, et cetera, and that, that motivated you? So I, 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 I'll, I'll get to the personal in a moment, but yeah. uh, it might be uh, a bit of a surprise. But uh, the, the view that I have is that um, uh, philosophy loves to talk about itself, because it's, of course, it's, 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 the, it's the place where you ask the so-called ultimate question, the ones that 
you address because they have the massive amount of consequences. So the analogy here is like, uh, no, two plus two equal four, it's, it's a mathematical statement. It's just not what you get a degree in mathematics for because it's trivial, so, but it's still mathematics. Should I wear my hair long or short? Well, that's not, not what you get a degree in philosophy for, but it's still a philosophical question. It's a normative question, for example, in terms of choices. And I can be, you can be totally informed, perfectly rational, willing to exchange views and still disagree about whether the hair should be long or short party on Saturday or not. See, but these are trivial questions. And whoever said that mathematics or science or philosophy couldn't be trivial. It's just that we escalate to the ultimate question that make the biggest difference. And honestly, you know, wearing my hair long or short, that doesn't make much of a difference. But believing, for example, whether there is a God or not, that is massively influential on the rest of my thinking, or it should be if I'm a coherent person. So back to the personal point, which is now linked, um, I don't know whether young people, for example, are, are motivated by uh, particular questions about technology. I think they might well be, because that's where you start scratching that particular curiosity. But a classic is something that you can read again and again, as we know, and find more and more in it. Because um, what I like to describe it as, not as a source of meaning, but as a resource to build meaning. Again, not in the design sense. I use classics as planks to build my house. Without those planks, I wouldn't be able to build the house. But with those planks, some houses come one way instead of another. I'm much more you know, inclined to, by inclination, education, more in, in the line of Plato, um, Augustine, Descartes, you know, Wittgenstein. It's, it's, you can tell that line of thinking a little bit less towards, you know, inclined towards the you know, resources provided by Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, uh, that rationalism, the, the scholasticism of some, some kind, historically speaking. Uh, and so um, I know that that's where I go, go back for resources in my case. Now, in my own personal experience, when I was young, uh, I was very religious. Uh, I'm not, uh, no longer. Uh, I, was, uh, I was Catholic. Uh, uh, I'm not uh, an atheist either. Uh, I don't believe in the non-existence of God. That's how I describe myself. Because I think it, it requires as much sort of belief <laughs> as is required to believe in the existence of God. And uh, I'm agnostic now in the sort of sense, strong sense of the world. But when I was young, uh, I decided to do philosophy also to search for a particular solution for a particular problem. I wanted to understand in terms of information theory how God could uh, uh, manifest itself to humanity, literally. I thought that that manifestation, the message, the logos, the manifestation of God to humanity was an information process. And it had to be. I mean, if I'm here on the receiving side. Now, this me, 18 years old, no, first year of university, thinking this is, is a Shannon problem. <laughs> how do we make this in terms of communication theory? There's a source, that's God, sends me a message. The message arrives to me. I'm the receiver. Does it make sense? I got lost <laughs> pretty quickly, but I never lost that particular inclination. Uh, my whole philosophy is a journey trying to go home, literally. I've been trying to go back home to believing in the existence of God for the past 30, 40 years, more or less, almost 40 now, I'm, I'm 55. And I'm just not sure uh, I, I'll, I'll get back there. But that's my Ithaca. That's what I'm going. Uh, and I hope to get there one day. Uh, but in the meanwhile, no, the, the long, long, long journey back home uh, has been uh, enriching in terms of 
just just the journey because from there the interest in information theory the understanding of computer science the personal interest and uh, those were not 80s uh, in, in ai etc and then more and more in terms of uh, no, epistemology the ethics the, the, the metaphysics the ontology of all that digital stuff and then finally internet happened and i saw that was like a moment of no return i said this is going to change the world can't believe the, the number of people said no nah, i don't think so it's a fashion i just i just thought i had seen the light I just, you can't go back to you know, once you've seen that you said i don't care i'm not going to have a job but this is too, too fundamental to be able not to uh, deal with it Luciano, thank you. That was an extraordinary personal revelation, a very beautiful yeah. revelation. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think it's, it's, yeah, well, thanks. I think it's, um, it's great to hear how philosophers came to philosophy. And, um, and I think that's an especially meaningful story. Um, when we think about this development then, this trajectory, and this kind of interest in taking account of the way the world is changing. So your increased engagement with, I guess, philosophy of computation and the internet, et cetera. Do you see, um, so it seems to be a distinctive mark as a, sort of a an outsider looking at your work, it seems to be a distinctive mark of your work that you're, you're always ready to engage with the kind of the, the core ethical questions that, um, that come out of, uh, for example, currently um, questions around the nature of that app for, uh, I guess, the NHS app for COVID-19. Um, how, how do you see that um, that kind of engagement? Is it just uh, that you're sort of inevitably driven to, to get involved with these questions? Or is it, um, maybe you could, you could address that. What's going on when, when, you're, when you put together the, the, the advice concerning the app for uh, tracking and tracing COVID-19? So, for example. Yeah, I think for example. Is, um, it has... Um Several components. They are all equally important. So I'm going to list them, but not that one is more important coming first and so on. First of all, um, a philosopher, a true philosopher, seems to me, young, small, big, whatever, but uh, is someone who is curious. You need to have that kind of uh, constant interest for, for something new, to learn more, to, to go beyond what is your area of expertise. You love the challenge. When, I, when my, someone says, oh, Channel, should, should I go into a PhD philosophy? My first question is, do you love problems? No, no, well, but stay away. <laughs> go, get another job. If you love problems, if you stay on the problems, if you look for problems as friends, then you have a good chance of doing philosophy problems. Yeah. So I love that challenge. That's the first point. The second point is that digital technology is throwing at us constant transformations that have deep implications for our philosophical thinking. In this case, for example, um, deep, not, not even that deep behind all this uh, is digital sovereignty. Who is in command today? And that's why I was so curious. I'm working on a chapter for a book about the transformation of, of the concept of sovereignty today. Now, mind, back to what we were saying before, this is a modern concept that has libraries. Now, <laughs> what you have behind you and me <laughs> written on top. Uh, uh, and yet, the digital technology is transforming it dramatically in its essence. So that was also like, oh, I, I want to know more. And that's the third component. 
I like to know. I am a true believer in knowing. Not, if I may say so, uh, rubbishing around not with half-baked ideas. So hands-on is the best thing. Uh, exposed to true uh, science with its faults and limitations, I'm not blind to not, I, the human enterprise. But I believe in logic and facts. Uh, they are my planks. Uh, they're just there, I mean, to be used, but I don't disregard them. And so if I have a chance to get involved with the people who are producing the science, the technology, the policy, you know, but that's, that's unique. So curiosity, hands-on, and no, deep philosophical questions. How can you resist? <laughs> Good. And how, let's take, let's take um, you mentioned autonomy and, and sovereignty. Um, so if we're looking to the history of philosophy as a resource for addressing these kinds of contemporary challenges, so if we're concerned, for example, with um, questions around privacy and app development, et cetera, it strikes me that we're often sort of really talking about autonomy, questions around autonomy. So how, where does a philosopher go other than just thinking about the questions and, and reasoning through the questions? Take the history of philosophy. What would be some resources from the history of philosophy that are informing your thoughts about, for example, the COVID-19 app that, uh, that you're developing or they're developing with the NHS, or the, et cetera? Um, what, what, where would we go? Where would we go for resources that make sense? So we, we talked earlier about the continuity sure. of certain traditional questions and these novel contexts or the development of these questions. We talked earlier about, um, let's say, how certain kinds of ways of addressing these questions might lack relevance today or might cease to be interesting for various reasons. But very concretely, in this case, where do we go? So I think that, uh, and that's, that's why education is so crucial, is, is vital. I mean, a, a good, solid, robust education is vital. It's because where you, where you get your training, and then you know where to go. Uh, if you don't have that training, there is no bloody way of going anywhere. Uh, you can't invent yourself. And that's why no, you don't become a philosopher from one day to the next. That's why a scientist normally is not a good philosopher. It doesn't Very have good. that training of, of knowing, and in this case, you no, know, straight away, Kant, autonomy, immediately. But for example, there was a strong argument, and it's still a strong argument, in terms of uh, let's make the app compulsory because of the social good. All of a sudden, you, know, you make it compulsory for everybody, so uh, it's good for humanity, good, uh, good outcome, etc. And then you start in the usual you know, interplay between uh, autonomy and more Kantian, deontological, etc. Or is it really the common good, et cetera, that needs to uh, have a, a, a go? Now, I tend to stay away from uh, things that I think have already been kind of half solved anyway. So I'm not the kind of person who gets involved in terms of should we apply this theory or that theory to this problem. I don't think that that's how you do fresh philosophy. You do fresh philosophy when you take that, this debate and you start looking at other things that emerge or clash not by putting all these uh, elements together but to answer your question unless you have that training and you have spent years and years and years of reading all that stuff that hopefully somewhere back in your mind <laughs> even if you don't know with a snap no can quote canter uh, in german out of your <laughs> the back of your mind but that way of thinking thinking oh i know how this smells like so it's a bit like uh, having done all the exercise in, in at the gym and then playing 
you, you don't play unless all, all, all that gym, years and years of constant training. Now, having put all this together, now there are some things that literally are a matter of applying carefully what you have learned. So it's, if you like a classic game, you know how to play it, all the, all the moves, you bring home the good result, goodbye. There are the cases, and this is a bit like the app, you know, classic debate, autonomy, you know, social um, benefit, etc. There are the things where you really have to scratch your head. For example, let me give you one example that came with the emerged accidentally by all doing all this, uh, and uh, and I believe in, in, in very much in uh, uh, being at the desk when fortune comes around. It has to find you at the desk, <laughs> and so while you're at the desk trying to solve a problem, etc. One thing that emerged quite clearly is because of the, the, the impact of coronavirus, there will be an immense amount of money that will be spent, et cetera. We know that. Okay, so here's the problem, which I have literally these days, and just before talking to you, I was taking some notes and said, thinking, oh, how do we solve this? What can we take from the future? Literally. See, by borrowing from the future money, as we speak, you know, that's what we take. We leave them, future generation, debt. And I'm talking real cash and not so metaphorically, no, no, like, uh, no. Europe will be borrowing money from Europeans who will have to repay their debt. So will Americans, so, so money is one thing. Okay, money is some kind of resources. Any kind of resources? Well, uh, you start thinking, you know what we cannot take from the future? A boat. You can't borrow from them a boat because if you could, they would tell you, Better be careful how you spend their money because I'm going to pay for it. So, so it's not you and me. It's you no know, a future you who, from whom I can take the money, but you have no say on how I spend it. That's a bad deal for you, my my future Luciano. So you start thinking those terms, and all of a sudden you have a bit of a framework in terms of okay, there must be something here in terms of what you can take from the future, what you cannot, and what you owe to the future. New idea, maybe, maybe not, but you start thinking differently about the coronavirus. Sure. It's very complicated because, of course, you know, the, the future, the future Europeans from whom you're borrowing this money are likely to be significantly more prosperous as a result of your having done this. So they, right. So they may actually owe you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these exactly, kinds exactly. of right. It's an experiment uh, you, you start running. So you, all of a sudden, that was exactly the, the, the mental uh, experience. So, okay, yeah. what do I have that I owe to people who borrowed from me? Imagine right. I am their future. Right. And what did they take from me? That Very good. I say, oh, I wish they hadn't. So you start playing with these ideas, and you can tell. You need to be careful, though. And that's a, uh, perhaps the only quotation I might have ready at hand it's from Oscar Wilde, and I read it a long, long time ago. I, was, I wasn't even in Oxford. But I think in the, in the De Profundis, he says, um, uh, at some point he's describing this and that, and he says, um, to play gently with ideas. I think if there's a nice description of, the, of philosophizing you know, as conceptual design, is to play gently with ideas. The ideas mm. are very fragile. People don't understand. You need to have the finest touch, if you like, uh, or the finest ear to listen to them, you know, uh, let them grow, see how they sort of socialize with each other. If you don't have that attitude, you, you crash everything. You're the elephant in, in the crystal room. So interesting. You, you know, this, this idea of conceptual design as a kind of 
almost an artistic process where you're you're engaged in in this um, in this kind of reflection that's motivated in various ways by what's going on around us, et cetera, but it's at the same time responsive to the tradition. It's a it's a it's a beautiful confluence of of kind of tradition and sensitivity to the present. And I'm wondering, um, you know, we often are maybe tempted by a kind of apocalyptic view of, of history that, you know, things are changing fundamentally, that things are going to, you know, the nature of what it means to be a human being is changing fundamentally. The nature of, you know, our politics, et cetera, of our sort of the fate of our civilization is changing fundamentally. And if you think about challenges, let's say moral or ethical or political challenges around the development of technology, and you maintain this idea of conceptual design as a kind of balancing of the tradition and of, of relevance, relevant considerations from the present. How do you respond to the to to worry? Let's say, for example, it's very popular to talk about the post-human, the idea that we're on the verge of a kind of a post-human moment, or you know, there was a fashion maybe seven, eight years ago, ten years ago, for the singularity that somehow there would be this exponential increase in the development of technology, such that we have this radical transformation. We come to a new, uh, a new, a new condition because our our technology would increase in its capacities exponentially and outpace us in various ways. Now, neither of us, I think, are strong believers in the singularity, but we are constantly kind of um, encountering that apocalyptic element in the development of technology. Um, and that would change everything. So there, there, you know, conceptual design changes character. So if, if human beings can be anything, then why does the past inform what they ought to be, for example? Why would you feel locked on to some picture of what it is to be a human or be a person, let's say, more accurately? Yeah. And why would you not just feel completely free to radically redesign our our way of being, our societies, our et cetera. Um, so I guess that that kind of the, that apocalyptic element. I'm thinking now of your your early Christianity. All right, there's an apocalyptic element to Christianity at, at its heart, but here we see a sort of an apocalyptic moment in technology. How does the conceptual designer react to that? How do you how do you how do you counsel people to to attend to tradition in these kinds of yeah. Yeah. Debates. I, I find it unconvincing for, for philosophical reasons, uh, meaning the, the total disruption, the, the breakthrough, the nothing ever will be the same, example. not because we haven't been there. I mean, discover America, Hong Kong. I mean, there are moments of transformations. You, you actually put, put that little dot on, on the history line and says, from that moment onwards, things really changed. But not entirely and not all over the place, not suddenly. It's not, um, that's what I'm normally saying, like a bad science sci-fi movie is one in which they all dress the same, they all drive fancy cars, they all live in the same buildings, all that. It never has never happened. A good science sci-fi movie, you know, Star Wars or, as I prefer, you know, Blade Runners, there's a continuity. You know? 
the, the streets are dirty, some people are poor, some people still use a knife, some other people have a, a laser blade, whatever. So, and that continuity is what we hear, for example, in terms of driver's cars. Now, I see cars around not built in the 60s in Oxford. So, uh, so how come that all of a sudden in this story about driverless cars, there's a year when more than a billion cars in the world becomes driverless? Now, this, it, it's just not realistic. So if anything we have learned from history is that um, each of us also doesn't, we're not born all boom. In one day, there's a whole humanity comes in and good, good morning. We were born as part of a continuity, a rope, as you were. So by roping in change, change transforms the rope, but so does the rope with change. And uh, so I'm not uh, someone who doesn't uh, appreciate, in fact, if anything, I, I love change and transformations and how radical they can be. And I've been talking you know, about this uh, sort of fourth revolution, or even hyperhistory now, so lots of terminology to try to capture the transformations. But far from me to say, therefore, you shouldn't read Shakespeare because Shakespeare doesn't tell you anything about human emotions. Really? <laughs> I think it tells you much more than quite a bunch of, of bad books that I've seen around. Uh, why? Well, because these are the fundamentals. Again, no, football is not the same football. Tennis. Take tennis. Tennis at Wimbledon. Those rackets, those balls, those techniques, is a different game. What you like to say? Is a completely different game or is still Wimbledon? And honestly, it depends on why you're asking that question. If you want to look for the novelty, you can tell. I mean, just look at the racket. No, I used to play squash with a, a wooden racket. It's, it's, a, it's a joke. It's a, it's a completely different game. Or you can say, come on, you're still tennis. I mean, those are the rules. That's what, how you score, and no, that's how you try, try to improve. I think the continuity, discontinuity, apocalypse, yeah, becomes a pointless debate unless someone is saying, I'm asking this question for that reason. So I'm trying to identify, for example, what makes a difference with the past. Say, so, okay, let's look for the discontinuity and so on. I'm trying to understand how much of the past will not percolate through in this transformation. How are we going to change the body, for example, in, 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 an, in an age in which inevitably you, know, you can have things implanted under you know, your skin as a matter of course. No, it could be you know, a peacemaker. I mean, it doesn't have to be something cyborg. Well, that's something that I'm sure our ancient philosophy would have found really weird. So, uh, yes, no, um, total, absolute. Uh, I, I find those questions a better way of approaching conceptually what needs to be uh, really understood. At that point, we start doing good philosophy. Good. Jenna, this has been a fantastic discussion. I mean, is there anything you'd like to, um, to share with viewers or listeners about, you know, what you're hoping for philosophy? Like, why do you, um, yeah, give us, give us a sense for what you hope will happen I, 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 in I our discipline. One thing that I'm quite keen on, and that's, uh, to me, philosophy, especially the philosophy that I do, but that's another story, but in general, philosophy is often uh, seen as the, no, not the, the lady in, in, in the canteen or in the underground doing a little bit of the dishes, not cleaning up, except the other things are more important, economic, science, politics, and so on. Then I remind those people that that lady is called Cinderella. She's the real queen. Uh, she's the one who actually makes the whole thing working. And those who do not care about philosophy, they do that at their own risk and peril, completely. Because they just walk through into problems, into life, like sleepwalking. And you might say, well, I'd rather be a sleepwalker. I'd rather not see because life you know, is a tragedy and I'd rather be sort of numb throughout the process. 
you're very welcome. But that is a philosophical choice as well. And you cannot escape and making at least that much of a philosophical choice. I shall be numb and sleepwalking through life for the rest of my years. You're welcome. I'm not going to do that, but at least we should both agree that there is no such thing as a non-philosophical life. There is one called bad philosophical life, or plenty. And so that's why we should be doing good philosophy. Great. Anyone who's stuck with us for this uh, past 40 minutes has, is definitely not sleepwalking at this point. It's wide not. awake. So, <laughs> yeah. Luciano, I really thank you for this. It's been a real pleasure and, um, and uh, look forward to speaking with you again soon. So thanks again. I hope so. Thank yeah. you. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>